You are listening to highlights from the Creative Process interview with Stuart Umpelke. This podcast is sponsored by the Jan Michalski Foundation. I want to ask just a straightforward question, you know, what is cybernetics? Because people have different interpretations. Well, it's the Greek word for governor. That's where it came from. And uh, it was uh, introduced into the contemporary discussion with a book by Norbert Wiener in 1948 called Cybernetics Control and Communication in Animal and Machine. This was the very early days of uh, computers. And they were looking for a theory to guide the creation of computers. And so Wiener came up with this uh, Greek word for governor because that's basically what you use a computer for is control and then in a positive sense uh, and governing things and communication. So control and communication in animal and machine. And they wanted, and that book was written by Wiener while he was attending a series of conferences sponsored by the Josiah Macy Jr. Foundation in New York City. And there were a bunch of uh, people from many disciplines, uh, engineering, math, social science, anthropology, psychology, physiology, uh, who were interested in the topic of the Macy Foundation conferences, which was circular causal and feedback mechanisms in biological and social systems. Now, during World War II, Wiener and others had been working on something called a radar-guided anti-aircraft gun. So you, you use a radar signal and you sense the position of an enemy plane and you use that information to point the gun uh, where you think the plane's gonna be in the future and you keep firing it and so forth. And those, that equipment was built and installed on ships in the Pacific uh, before the end of World War II. Um, so it's sometimes called the duck hunter problem. Uh, and it required feedback because um, they started working with biologists and there was something called purpose tremor. Uh, let's say I have a pen on my desk. I reach out, I pick up my pen. Uh, when I do that, I go directly to the pen and I pick it up without any problem. But some people have a problem. They have purpose tremors, so their hand goes back and forth like this. And that was a tip-off that it's not just one command that causes them to reach for the pen, but rather that it's a series of commands and that there's a coordination between the eye and the hand. And so you have a problem of control. And it's a very general problem when you're driving a car, when you're managing a firm, uh, when you're balancing your checkbook, you're trying to get things in the right order and in the right place and so forth. There's a, a field within the sciences called the unification of science or the unity of science. And the way I think of it is it's sort of um, puzzle solving. You. Uh, if you assembled a jigsaw puzzle, you know, you want to fit the pieces together. Well, in a university has a set of disciplines, how do they all fit together? And there are a number of ways you can think about that. You can start off with physics at the atomic level, 
and go on up to the social sciences, nation states, and so forth. Uh, and that's one way of fitting the disciplines together, but there are common methods that can be shared. Uh, and so that's another part of what I'm interested in is the unity of science or the unification of science, finding general principles. That's what general systems theory is about. For example, evolution. Evolution started, I guess, uh, with Darwin, but we often talk about the evolution of industrial systems. We talk about the evolution of medical practice. Uh, all kinds of things evolve in the world because they're changing and developing. So evolution is one idea that stretches across many fields. Briefly, you had talked about the fact that science really focuses on theories and val values them as much as the methods themselves, but almost in a sense that the method can, can be more broadly applied. The notion about theories and methods is related to this distinction between uh, inanimate objects and, and observers. If you acknowledge that the role of the observer is, pre is present and important, then you want to focus some attention on it. You don't want to just assume it away, which is the way science worked for a very long time. The whole idea was to be objective, to eliminate the observer, to disregard the observer, to design controlled experiments where you have an experimental group and a control group so you could eliminate the observed effects. That was the foundations of science and it's worked beautifully. But when you're managing a firm, or a country, uh, it's not so easy to neglect things like the observer or the actor. So the nice thing about methods as an approach to creating a literature on a phenomenon is that the method says, do this, 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 and this, like a recipe. And that explicitly acknowledges that somebody's got to do something. The observer has to do something. And how do you find out about something? Well, you know, you put this chemical in a flask and you add another chemical and it fizzes or it doesn't fizz. But you have a procedure you have to execute. So methods explicitly mention what the observer's role is, which we had previously conveniently assumed away. So that's the fundamental thing underlying the difference between theories and methods is, are you including the observer in your study of the subject? That, that's really interesting you say that because, uh, I mean, especially in the realm of teaching journalism nowadays, you gotta take yourself out of the equation. Now, Heinz von Forster, this physicist that I studied with, had something to say about journalism. Tell it like it is, and he said, no, that's not right. He says, it is the way you tell it. And that focuses uh, the attention on the responsibility of the journalist. Because if you say it one way and people believe it, you have just intervened in the system. If you say it a different way and people believe that, you've altered the system in another direction. That's why social media is so important. I mean, they say that they're, that this is alt news. Well, uh, 
if people believe it, you're changing the system. So you have a responsibility to try to tell the truth. And if you're making it up, you know, like fiction and so forth, that's fine. Well, let people know that that's what you're doing. Because if you present yourself as telling the truth, and in fact, you're just saying things that aren't true, you're creating noise in the social system. And what do you learn from the, the different approaches as you host people from different parts of the world? And how did you engage and build upon um, your approaches? Okay. Uh, well, one of the things that um, I have become interested in over time is something called group process methods for decision making. Uh, participatory strategic planning is one example. And I discovered this approach to social activity soon after arriving at Washington from University of Illinois. And I was very impressed with it. And so I wanted to learn more about it. Uh, and I went to some conferences where they were using these methods in poor communities. And I thought the methods were very good. So I started using them with the American Society for Cybernetics. People got very excited about it. This is great. You know, we're, we're, we're interacting more with one another. And uh, um, so I, that's part of what I mean when I talk about second order cybernetics or second order science. It's very much more participative than sort of just lecturing and then asking some questions and so forth. You try to pull people's ideas together in a sequence of uh, by asking a sequence of questions like, what's your vision for the future? And everybody writes down on cards. You stick them up on the board. Then you cluster the cards on the board. And then you talk about that vision of the future. And then you say, okay, if that's our vision of the future, why don't we already have it? If that's what we're all thinking about. So what are the obstacles? So then you write down, you know, your notion of obstacles. Everybody writes down some obstacles. You put it up on the board, you cluster them, and then you have a conversation about it. Then you come, many times you go back and come back the next day or in the afternoon, you say, okay, if those are the obstacles, what are some strategies that would remove the obstacles to achieving the vision? You write down a sheet of paper and you post them up on the door and you discuss those. Next time around, you say, okay, if that's all, those are our strategies, what tactics do we need to t take to implement those strategies? And you do the same thing, write it down on a piece of paper. So and then the last one is, what specific actions need to be done? Who does what, when, where, and how in order to implement the tactics? And you write all this up and you have a report. And then you try to implement those ideas over the next months or so forth. And then say after six months, you come back and say, okay, what did we say we were gonna do? And you reread the report. What did we actually do? What was easier than we thought? What was more difficult than we thought? And then you go through the whole thing all over again. And, and, well, and what did we learn you know, about what was easy and what was difficult? And then you go through it again. And you do this periodically every six months or every year. You go through one of these conversations. It's a more structured conversation than the usual strategic planning activity, but it's a way of doing strategic planning. 
And that's the way you create a learning organization because your people are conver con uh, conversing with one another and they're learning and they're influencing one another and they're changing their behavior and so forth. And uh, so that's one of the things. We hope you enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about exhibitions and interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.